Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting content you love. Thanks! Hi, church. Hi. My name is Carissa, and my pronouns are she, her, and today I'm going to be sharing with you my Dayenu meditation. For this worship series, it would have been enough. We are borrowing a pattern of storytelling that is closely related to the Exodus story. It is called Dayenu, which is a Hebrew phrase that means it would have been sufficient, implying that something more, something extra follows that phrase. Dayenu is also a cheerful song sung by Jewish families at their Passover meals. It tells the story of God's liberation of our ancestors as a series of escalating gifts from God. We're learning to tell our own stories in this Dayenu pattern so we can experience the escalating gratitude that it provokes. Today, it is my turn to share my story. Dayenu, it would have been enough. It would have been enough if God had whispered, I love you, from the empty dorm room of sad, scared, lonely eight-year-old me as she cried into her pillow at night. Dayenu, it would have been enough. But then God also used a gym coach to tell clumsy middle school me I was a valuable member of the soccer team. It would have been enough if God had only used the gym coach's encouragement to let middle school me know I was valuable. Dayenu, it would have been enough. But then God also whispered into my listless, lonely high school ears, urging me to stir up all my energy and creativity to start an after-school club for the little children running around my Venezuelan neighborhood. It would have been enough if God had only used this after-school club to show high school me what I was made of. Dayenu, it would have been enough. But then later in my adult years, the spirit of the living God carried a handwritten letter from my brother into my fundagelical hands, a letter bearing the words, I'm gay, and the question, is it possible God could still love me? It would have been enough if the spirit of God had only worked on my heart, dissolving my toxic theology through my brother's letter. Dayenu, it would have been enough. But then Mother God gathered all these moments and breathed them into my soul, reminding me of the life and love and courage in my heart, daring me to go to seminary. Dayenu. Hey friends, my name is Katie. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the lead evangelist here at Galileo Church. I'm so relieved I remembered to tell you that. I often forget when we get this much into the service because I'm just worshiping along with you and it's, it's quite, quite lovely. Um, we're picking up tonight the Exodus story. We began last week in the middle of the story 
with the Israelites escaping from Egypt, first on one side of the Red Sea and then on the other, we're backing up tonight to go back to Exodus chapter 1, and I'm reading the opening sort of prologue, kind of the prequel um, to the longer story. So Exodus 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. It's a rollicking story. It won't take too long. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians subjected the Israelites to hard servitude and made their lives bitter with hard servitude in mortar and bricks and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, God gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall... Let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. 
When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then the baby's sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yeah. So the girl went and called their mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In a shameless ripoff from the legendary Ann Richards, circa 1988, poor Pharaoh, he couldn't help it. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth. If you are too young or not well acquainted enough with Texas politics to know that reference, just Google silver foot in his mouth. It'll take you right to it. He inherited a corrupt economic system from his daddy Pharaoh, who got it from granddaddy Pharaoh, who got it from great-granddaddy Pharaoh, and so on. An economy built on the backs of enslaved immigrants, the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, the patriarch, eventually, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Pharaoh also therefore inherited 400 years worth of paranoia that the creatures they had enslaved to build their very impressive cities might someday figure out that they were no less than human and therefore entitled to, um, oh, I don't know, a little respect and a fair day's wage for their back-breaking labor. This Pharaoh followed the only leadership training he had ever received. Keep them exhausted and afraid, they said, and they'll stay in line. He also inherited, I'm assuming, an erroneous impression that the threat to his privilege and power would come from the male folk among the Hebrew vassals. To ensure the safety of his kingdom, his people, and his own sorry throne, he kept making up ways to get rid of the baby boys, thinking that girls and the women they would grow up to be posed no danger to his position. He should have thought about that some more. Now, it might be a little early on the timeline of human history to expect him to get beyond the gender binary, to grok the complexities of gender identity beyond what could be seen about a newborn baby's private parts. But he might have just asked some women what they thought about his plan. He should have run his first idea by an Egyptian midwife or two. They surely would have told him, respectfully, sir, that no midwife of any ethnicity would do what he was asking. There are no humans on the planet more dedicated to the health and well-being of newborn babies, no matter what they've got between their legs, than midwives. But he charged ahead without such consultation, instructing the Hebrew midwives to swaddle the girl babies and deliver them sweetly to their mother's breast. But the boy babies, well, it's too horrible to say. 
And we've already let the Bible say it once. Shifra and Pua, and we should pause here for a second to marvel that we know these women's names. When there are so many nameless women in the stories of the Bible, Shifra and Pua, the midwives, the crones, who get called at any hour of the day or night to coach groaning mothers through the birthing process, women who usually prefer to remain anonymous as they go about their humble service, swabbing sweat and blood and meconium, all the fluids of life, using their wise hands and strong backs and steely voices and nimble wits to make sure that life wins, that babies and mothers survive the violent process of making more life. Shifra and Pua were gifted and called for this work. Pharaoh's idea that he could snap his fingers and break their commitment to the production of life in the world? He just didn't get it. It's no surprise to us that Shifra and Pua colluded together in a clever lie to explain their defiance of his order. I don't know, the Hebrew women are just too strong. They pop these babies out before we even show up. There's nothing we can do, Pharaoh. And they shrugged the innocent shrug of those whose feigned ignorance is their best defense. So Pharaoh widens his net to include his entire nation of citizen soldiers. Keep your eyes peeled for Hebrew, new, Hebrew newborns, he says. Bring the boy children of the slaves in your quarter to the banks of the Nile. The river that gives us life will swallow them whole. No, ignore the girls. We have no problem with the girls. But again, it was the girls who thwarted his intentions. A Hebrew mother, whose name we will later learn is Jochebed, gives birth under the cover of darkness and discovers to her dismay that the child is a boy and won't be permitted to see his first sunrise if anyone outside her household and the mighty midwives finds out. But then, Scripture says, Jochebed sees by the light of the rising sun that he is, quote, a fine boy. And I ask you, what parent does not make such an assessment upon examining their newborn from head to toe? He is a fine boy, like all baby boys are fine boys. And so Jochebed defies Pharaoh's orders and keeps keeps him hidden in her house. It works for a little while. She wears him under her clothes where, she, where he can nurse and nap his early days away. She nestles him in the laundry basket that she takes to the riverbanks on wash day. Her older son and daughter take turns whispering lullabies to him as he becomes more wakeful and harder to keep still. But eventually, even Jochebed has to concede that keeping a newborn hidden is not a long-term plan for the safety of her child and is endangering her whole family. She decides to follow Pharaoh's order to surrender her son to the Nile, but with a twist. She waterproofs a little woven crib, making a baby-sized boat to carry her beloved away from her. I cannot imagine what kind of deliverance her mind has dreamed up for him, But her heart, at least, will be satisfied that she's done everything she could. She kisses his forehead, breathes deeply of his perfect smell, and sets him afloat, turning quickly away, heading home to wait for her milk to dry up 
while she nurses nothing but her grief. If Jochebed were the last woman in our story, it would end here, but we're only halfway through the count. Shifra, Pua, Jochebed, and now Miriam. Jochebed raised a daughter, the baby's big sister, raised her to never look away. And it's that girl who keeps eyes on that baby boat from the moment her mother lets it go. Miriam hurries down the bank further and further and further away from her home, never letting her little brother out of her sight. And when the river widens into a shallow pool at the edge of the royal estate, she alone witnesses the boat bobbing into a royal bathing party. The Pharaoh's own princess daughter, she's number five, has waded into the bulrushes, hoping maybe to beat the heat. You know the feeling? She spies with her little eye the miniature ark and sends her maid, she's number six, the completion of our set, into the deeper water to fetch it out. And now... The baby is in the arms of a princess, rooting for a breast, crying for a mother, and the princess, whose name we do not know, is captivated. Miriam steps boldly from her hiding place. I can help, she announces. That baby is hungry. I can get him a nurse. Yes, please, the princess says. Find someone fast. I'll hold him till you get back. Miriam sprints away back to her own home to find her mother, the baby's own mother. Wipe your tears, mama, she says. Brush your hair. Put on your shoes. You've got a son to care for. In defiance of Pharaoh's mandate, these women, Jochebed, Miriam, the princess, her maid, will tend together to the life of this little boy until he is grown, until he is the adult God intends for him to be, the baby, of course, is Moses. And while we know that he will one day be God's agent of liberation, prying God's people from Pharaoh's clenched fist, it is first necessary that his own life be rescued and preserved by the strength and determination of six women whose simple choices for life over death changed the course of history. The first time I preached this text at Galileo Church, back in 2014, people all over social media were dumping buckets of ice water over their own heads. Do you remember that? The ice bucket challenge was raising money for research to cure ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis a disease that deteriorates muscular function until the only thing left working is a person's fully conscious brain. It is the epitome of helplessness, I said in 2014, that disease. And the ice bucket challenge is a metaphor for how desperate we are to feel like there is something we can do in the face of that extreme helplessness. Keep in mind that in 2014, Donald Trump was still a joke. And summer times were hot, but not inferno hot. And we'd never even heard of the first 18 coronaviruses. 
From my own position of white privilege, Black Lives Matter was a brand new hashtag, and I wasn't even sure what a hashtag was. Teachers were still underpaid back then, but they weren't harassed by their own book-banning school boards. And marriage equality rallies in 2014 were full of joy and optimism. Ah, the good old days of 2014. Surely the helplessness of 2023 is exponentially deeper. The incapacitating impotence wrought by political polarization, escalating climate catastrophe, brutal identity politics, and the never quite disappearing pandemic threat eating away at our sense of well-being, devouring our hope for our future and our children's future, like the plague of grasshoppers, honest to God, that consumed every tender leaf from the mimosa tree and the zinnias in our backyard this long, miserable summer. But here is where our ancestor story can help us, if we'll let it. Surely we are no more weighed down by systemic brutality than the six women in our story tonight. Surely we are no more bound by helplessness than the enslaved Hebrew and Egyptian women, including their Egyptian princess ally, her identity so unimportant in a Pharaoh's world that she wasn't even given a name of her own. And surely we have resources beyond compare with the heroines of the Exodus prequel, Moses' origin story, they did so much with so little. How could we do less? The Exodus story all along the way will invite us to imagine ordinary human beings as full partners in God's saving work. Oh, it'll be miraculous for sure. The strong arm and mighty hand of God rendering indomitable power over the counterfeit powers, hearts hardened and seas split and food materializing like morning dew on the prairie grass. But there will also be ordinary people on the ground in this story, employed for God's purposes, agents of God's power, doing the next right ordinary thing assisting in every human way the cosmic project of God getting everything God wants. Midwives will do their jobs, providing health care for women's bodies, even when the powers order them not to. Parents will risk everything to protect their kids from all kinds of harm. Big sisters. Are there any big sisters out there tonight? Big sisters will watch over little siblings, making sure that they have a good chance to grow up healthy and happy and strong. Princesses and other people of privilege will leverage that privilege for the sake of the vulnerable. Maids and other low-wage workers will find their way into the story too, so that all of these generations later, we remember not to discount the honest labor of the helpers. I guess the takeaway is something like, God's got people. God's got people everywhere doing their jobs, contributing to the redemption of all things. Of course, we each feel helpless on our own, but we're not really on our own, are we? For one thing, the story invites us to team up with each other 
to co-conspire together. For every Shifra to find her Pua, for every Jacobed to find her princess, not to imagine that our small collective efforts will solve every problem, but to trust that our faithfulness in doing the next right, ordinary thing together is what God requires for this divine human partnership to work. We read the story of these six women. We remember most of their names because the baby they saved was truly special and our own salvation history depends on him. But at the time they were living the lives this story reports, they didn't know any of that. They were just living faithfully and courageously through the normal circumstances of their supposed helplessness. They were just carving out small, consistently faithful responses in the middle of systemic injustice so huge and ugly they could not imagine it would ever be any different. And God said, yeah, okay, that'll be enough. Here we go. On my best days, I think God is still saying that. Still paying attention, not only to our hurt and harm, but also to the help we are each and together equipped to give to God's cosmic redemption project. On my best days, I do. How about you? Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support our missional priorities, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Share With Us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace. Peace.